Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. If the Lord were to return right now, do you know for sure, with nothing doubting, that you would spend eternity with Him? That question was sprung upon me in November 2009, when Kristen and I, that is my wife, when we were on our very first mission trip ever, we had recently decided that if the Lord wills, we'll spend the rest of our lives as missionaries. And by the way, the West, West Huntsville Church is part of that work now. We spent nine years in New Zealand. We're now working in the New Orleans area. And we appreciate so much your willingness to be a part of that work, to partner with us. And so I think very much like Paul thought toward the Philippians that I do not seek the gifts, but I seek for the, the fruit that abounds for your account. And so we recognize your role in our preaching of the gospel wherever we go. And so we're so grateful for that. That is a bit of a tangent, but I can't help but mention that and our love for you all and your partnership in our current work in New Orleans and wherever the Lord decides to take us. But Because we had recently decided that we wanted to be missionaries, we asked our current elders at the time if they would send us to some of the missionaries that they support so that we could help them and shadow them. So yeah, we went to the country of Bonaire to help the missionaries, but to this day I still think of ways in which they have helped us every single day, most of which was completely unexpected, and the help began when that question was sprung upon me. If the Lord were to return right now, do you know for sure, with nothing doubting, that you would spend eternity with him? What about you? How would you answer that question now that it has been sprung upon you? I imagine many of you would answer in a way similar to the way I did. I'd really like to to think, I'd I'd like to think so. Are, Are you absolutely sure that you're saved? Well, I guess I'll find out on the judgment day, won't I? I mean, if the judgment then were to come right now, would you spend eternity with Jesus? Well, no one is perfect. When I ask these questions tonight, I'm not talking to some random dude on the street. I'm talking to the saints of God. I'm speaking with people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. I'm talking to a group of people who who very well might know the song, Blessed Assurance, by heart. If the Lord were to return right now, do you know for sure, with nothing doubting, that you would spend eternity with him? If this evening you cannot answer that question with a resounding yes, then either there is something wrong with your faith, or there's something wrong with your Savior. Why is it that the children of God often lack the biblical confidence and assurance of their salvation? And Yes, I did say, Biblical assurance of salvation. It is biblical to have full confidence in your salvation if you truly are a child of God. And we'll talk about the reasoning for that in just a few moments. But sometimes the lack of assurance in our salvation, it comes from placing our faith in the wrong person. Have you ever had that nagging thought that although you have, and you might even get your fingers out, to go through this process, you, you've heard, you've believed, you've repented, you've confessed, and you've been baptized into Jesus. 
But although you have done all of that, maybe it wasn't enough. Well, what if you missed something? You love the Lord and, and you do want to spend eternity with him. But what if when you die, you find out that you didn't do enough? What if you weren't good enough? My friend, if you're asking that question, here are your instructions to find the assurance that you so desperately want. Repent and trust in Jesus. Because if you're asking the question, what if I'm not good enough? And you're trusting in yourself for your own salvation. And what is the entire point and premise for repenting and being baptized? I mean, if you could be good enough, then you wouldn't need Jesus. You wouldn't need to turn from anything to turn to something. You wouldn't need to be baptized into Jesus if you could do it yourself. Because none of us deserves heaven. We, we don't put God in our debt because we've listened to him, we've obeyed, or we've done some good deeds, or obeyed the gospel. Is it true that the Lord expects obedience from us? Absolutely, yes. But even then, we must remember how Jesus ended his parable In Luke 17 and verse 10, that when you have done everything, he says, so likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, you say, what do you say to God? Give me, give me, give me everything that I deserve. Don't you see all these good things that I've done that I have earned that you owe me? Of course not. You echo Jesus' words right here. You say, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done that which was our duty to do. Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 64, verse 6, that we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our, un, all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So stop depending on your own righteousness and trust in His. Become crucified with Christ. Be born again. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow him. And then you can finish Isaiah's words just a couple of verses later when he said, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You our potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Now, kind of as a side note, but related, let me also both commend and caution your personal goals. Because if you're anything like me, bless your heart, but if you are anything like me, you are a goal setter. You've got certain things that you want to accomplish in your life, and perhaps, or probably, many of those things are related to your spiritual life. So perhaps you have set before yourself a goal of memorizing a certain passage of scripture. Maybe you want to develop the habit of praying for an hour every single day, or maybe When you die, you want to be able to say, I've read through the entire Bible 40 times. Those are pretty cool and admirable goals. But don't develop the mentality that God has seen those goals now, and he now holds those over your head as a checklist that you must accomplish. And if you fail in any of them, then somehow you lose. Just remember, those are personal goals, not biblical or scripturally placed upon you. Why do God's children lack biblical assurance. Sometimes the problem is an overemphasis of sin, or let me put it this way, and you you can maybe imagine what I mean by that when you have this as your backdrop. An an overemphasis of sin or an underemphasis of the goodness of Christ. I've never heard a preacher explicitly teach the doctrine of one sin 
equals a lost Christian. However, I have heard a lot of Christians come to that conclusion, that one sin equals a lost Christian. How do people come to this conclusion? Perhaps it's the case that the preacher does a good biblical job talking about sin. And he preaches a great lesson or a series of lessons on how utterly sinful sin is and how sin is often much worse than we can ever imagine it to be. That's good. Maybe an elder teaches a Bible class to refute biblically the Calvinistic and false view of once saved, always saved, or the perseverance of the saints. That's good. But maybe one of the Christians who hears this now is convinced that he or she is just one sin, one slip-up, one momentary lapse of judgment away from hell, as if somehow God hangs all of his children over the lake of fire in an already thin thread, and he just can't wait to snip the remaining strands of that thread. The mindset might be that when you're baptized, you're clean. But then you mess up, and you're on your way to hell again. But but you pray, and so you're clean once again. But what happens the next day, or perhaps the very next hour, when you fail again, and you're in, and then you're out, and in, and out? One brother, he admitted that he hoped that the Lord would come between the hours of 12 a.m. and 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Because every night before he went to sleep, he always prayed for forgiveness for the sins of omission and the sins of commission. And he was always asleep by midnight. And his alarm was always set for 6 a.m. And so he knew that if the Lord came during those clean hours, that there's no way he could catch him. You hear that thought? Catch him with that sin that he knew he would commit the next day on his heart. Another brother admitted that the very first prayer he uttered after being baptized was, Lord, please kill me now. And he said that prayer in all seriousness because he knew he was clean, but he also knew that eventually he would mess it up. And he didn't want the Lord to catch him. He didn't want to be caught with some sin on his soul. So if he could take him now when he was clean for sure, then everything would be okay. If you've ever had any of this in your mind, I want to call your attention to Romans chapter 8. Now, unfortunately, the side note is this passage does not necessarily, or it doesn't teach what a lot of people have used it to try to teach. And the idea of once saved, always saved, that's not my topic. That's not my assigned lesson. So I'm not going to go in that direction. But I do want to call your attention to the love that is put forth in this passage. There's a question. It's a rhetorical question. We know the answer is nothing. No one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or disease or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded. Can you say with Paul, you are also persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things, to, things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tell me, brother, tell me, sister, when you have a faith in a love this big, do you still picture a God who can't wait to strike his children dead? Should you walk circumspectly? Should you be careful? Absolutely. 
I mean, even Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27 talked about how he disciplined his body so that after preaching to so many, he himself would not be disqualified. And if the apostle Paul was that careful, then we must also be careful, walk walk circumspectly as he would also instruct. But he's also the same person who could, with the same amount of confidence, say in the beginning of this same chapter, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus being one of the key phrases of this verse. We saw it in the previous passage that we read that actually comes after this one where he talks about the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. And so if you are in Christ Jesus, yes, walk carefully, repent whenever you do sin, pray regularly, but also rest assured that there is no condemnation for you. Why are we not sure about our salvation? Sometimes it is a lack of faith in Jesus. The go-to book of the Christian's assurance is the book of First John. The Holy Spirit inspired John to write this book to a group of Christians who were struggling with their confidence in Christ. And if you struggle with blessed assurance, I encourage you to go home tonight and read through this short book. It's only five short chapters. You could read through the entire thing in a few minutes. Tonight we will notice a few passages. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all all unrighteousness. A few things to notice about this passage. The Lord expects us to walk in the light. The verb walk in this passage is present subjunctive, and I don't pull that out of my own ability to dissect languages. This is coming from people who are smarter than I am, but I am told that this verb is present subjunctive, which means that we are to continually walk in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? I don't know if I can perfectly define it, but here's what I understand it to be. When you wake up in the morning and when your feet Hit the floor. It is your intention to honor the Lord. It is your goal that your footsteps today walk those footsteps of Jesus. And by the time your head hits the pillow that night, have you walked in the light? Well, you might have failed once or twice, but you've walked in the light. And when you do go to bed, you can repent of your sin. You can confess your sin But you can also thank God for the blessed assurance that he has provided you in Christ Jesus. He's provided you continual cleansing. And therefore you rest well in the peace that surpasses all understanding. Is that you? Are you someone who is walking in the light and you can rest in his peace? The next verb to uh, bring out here is the word cleanses. And that one is in present tense. And it means that when we are walking in the light, that cleansing from Jesus' blood is a constant thing. It is always around you. It is taking care of you. John here teaches us that it is possible to sin while walking in the light. 
And when we do, that doesn't give us a concession for sin, but we do have confession of sin in that moment. So, brethren, if you look at this passage and you see it as a license for sin, then you need to have a further study on another time. But, of course, those of us, when we approach this, we're walking in the light, we realize that we have that continual cleansing, we realize then that, yeah, I can sin while walking in the light. And what does that do? What does that do to the doctrine of one sin equals a lost Christian? And then to cap it off, do you see what uh, what Jesus has called or what John says about our Savior? First, let me ask you this. Is Jesus faithful? How often does Jesus keep his promises? And second, is Jesus just or is he righteous? How often does he do the right thing? The Holy Spirit tells us here that when we walk in the light and we confess our sins, Jesus faithfully does the right thing. And what is that thing? He forgives us from all sin. A-L-L. It is the right thing, it's the faithful thing, for Jesus to forgive us all of our sins. You may, and I understand this, you may think it a bit presumptuous to approach the throne of the God of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence, and expect for him to forgive you. But he has already told you that not only is it his desire to forgive you, but it is the right thing for him to do. Be reverent always, of course, but it's not presumptuous for you to approach God expecting him to keep his promises. And directly after this passage, of course, is chapter 2. and verse 1, where he says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. Related to our sin, Jesus is given two titles in this passage. He is called an advocate and a propitiation. What is this? It is courtroom language. Language I kind of wanted to stay away from this week, except right now my wife is stuck in jury duty. She would very much rather be with us here tonight, but that summons came, and she knows more courtroom language than I probably ever will now that she's been in this situation. But I do recognize this as courtroom language. I want you to imagine for a second that you are in a courtroom and you are the condemned because you're facing $100 trillion worth of fines. And you know it's true. You've admitted, you've admitted as such and all evidence points to you. There's no getting out of this. You are completely guilty. But you also know that even if you were given 100 lifetimes, you wouldn't be able to pay back $100 trillion. And the sentence is coming and you know there's nothing you could do about it. And then you look over to the advocate whom the state has appointed to you. And in his hand is a stack of papers. Doubtless, they're related to all those fines that you have racked up and that you owe. But for some reason, there's something stamped on top. It says paid in in full. Curious, of course, you meet the eyes of the advocate and all he does is smile. And then he turns to the judge and he says, Your Honor, I do believe it's time that you let my client go completely free of charge. (laughs) And of course, the judge scoffs at that idea. Why do you think I should do that? Let's hear it. And the advocate humbly asks for permission to approach. Permission is granted. He says, Sir, because, because I've paid all of his fines. And here are the receipts to prove just as much. And everything checks out. And by the end of the day, you're free and clear. Now the courtroom piece of jargon, justified. 
you are completely as if you had never even racked up those fines. It's wiped from your record. You're free to go. He can legally dismiss your case. In the next chapter of 1 John, John does tell us that sin is the breaking of God's law. Have you and I done that? Yes, of course we have. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are in trouble with the law. But we've been appointed an advocate, not from the state, but from the Father himself. And not only does the advocate plead our case, but he himself pays our fines. He is our advocate and our propitiation. And when the fines are paid, the judge can legally dismiss your case and you are justified. Do you still lack faith in the good work of Jesus, in the full work of the Christ? When we do lack confidence in our salvation, why is that? Sometimes it's an inability to let go of the things of the past. Maybe you're aware of all of this. Everything that we've talked about so far, you're confident that the Lord is taking care of right now, present tense. But that's not the problem. What is the problem is the stuff in the past that remains in your memories. You see, your, your past, as we say, is haunting you. Yes, you have repented of that, but you're still dealing with the scars and the consequences of something that happened years ago. Now, to be clear, it is okay to be sad. It's okay to think about these memories and long for the things before all of that happened or wish that the consequences were not yours today to face. It's okay for those scars to remain and for you to remember tragic moments. The joy of the Lord goes deeper than those scars and, in fact, can coexist with somebody's sadness. But if the Lord has forgiven you Of whatever that was, you must be willing to let go of the guilt as well. And even if you can do that, you might still be sad on occasion. Paul wrote this to the Ephesian Christians, and I think we all need to hear it. Earlier we emphasized in Romans 8, Paul's usage of the word in Christ or in him. About 127 times, Paul uses one of those phrases throughout his epistles, and here's another one. He starts off uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 with that, in him, in Christ. That is, if you are in Christ, walking in the light, if you are washed in the blood, if you are a Christian, if you are in him, what do you have? We have redemption. Notice that pronoun when Paul says we, by the way. If there's anybody who has a past that could haunt them, It would be Saul of Tarsus, the terrorist who was bent on destroying this rumor that Jesus of Nazareth was risen from the dead and tried to kill this cult who claims to be some kind of sect of Judaism, these Nazarites, Nazarenes, whatever we want to call them, let's just destroy them. Of course, he repented from that, and I'm sure at some time when he closed his eyes, even as a Christian, memories haunted him, yet he uses the personal pronoun we here. He knows how true it is that in him we, we have what? Redemption. You used to be over there, but now you're here. You used to be walking away, but you've been brought back, brought near to the Lord. You've been purchased back. Although you had those fines, Jesus paid those fines and brought you near by his blood. And that's exactly what he says. We are redeemed through his blood. And what does that mean for you and me? The forgiveness of sins. 
Whatever it was that you did so many years ago or so many hours ago, that has been paid for. The blood of Jesus is so powerful that it could take care of the most heinous of crimes if the person is truly willing to believe and repent and trust in the Lord to take care of that for him. And notice this next phrase. We have the forgiveness of sins and it's according to something. So many people have it in their minds. Some Christians still, for whatever reason, have it in their minds as well. That, yeah, I'll be redeemed according to my good works, according to making sure that the scales are more heavy on the good works side versus the sin side, that I do more good works than bad works. That's not what the, the passage says. It says that it's according to his grace, and they're called the riches of his grace. Uh, I can give grace every now and then, whether it's to my neighbor, to myself, to my children, But I don't know if I would be considered as being rich in grace, at least compared to someone who has witnessed and felt the nails of every single sin, of every single person, and yet he's willing to forgive every single sin. His grace certainly should be described as being rich. And it continues, which he made to abound. And so not only has he taken care of right now and the past, but he's also prepared to carry you all the way through, even if it means you're going to mess up between now and heaven. Because it abounds toward us in... Paul says in Romans 15 that God is all wise. And in all of that wisdom, think of all the wisdom that is in the world, God created that and he has even more than that. And in all that wisdom... Paul says this was his plan in all wisdom and prudence. Now now we're starting to see the assurance and the confidence that the Lord expects us to have when we are walking in the light. Our faith should be in his grace, not in my grace, because sometimes I'm harder on myself than even Jesus is. It hurt him more, yet he was willing to forgive me, yet I can't let go of that guilt. Continuing through the book of 1 John, we land on chapter 3, verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and we assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. I have failings as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, and because of that, doubt sometimes creeps in. And I'm tempted to despair because my heart begins to condemn me. And the person who can't forget the past, of course, is someone who is always hounded by this. Shall we read it again? And whatever our heart condemns us, what does it say? God is greater than our heart, and we will assure our heart before him. Now, who here knows what it's like, and perhaps even done a bit of a happy dance, when you've paid off a debt? Maybe you paid off the house, maybe you've paid off the car. You know what it feels like when you do something like that. You feel that relief. It's gone. You realize the bank no longer holds that against you. Yet who here also has gone into the bank the very next month and demanded that they take your check because I I know you guys have forgiven me, you've written it off, but I just can't let go of that debt in my heart. Hmm, That doesn't make a lot of sense. Christ has paid for your sin. It's totally paid off. Do you believe that? If the Lord has paid for it with his blood, you've got no right to keep demanding payment 
And you don't need my permission. You don't need your permission to move on and to reach forward as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. You have the assurance that it's been paid in full. And then you can place You can replace doubt with confidence. In verse 21, he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, if the Lord were to return right now, do you know for sure, with nothing doubting, that you would spend eternity with him? In 2009, when that question was sprung upon me and I responded with, well, I'd like to think so, my friend looked me in the eye and he said, turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Read it out loud. And I did. And I read these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, there are 41 English words in the New King James Version, at least, of this verse. 41, 20 on top, 20 on bottom. Do you know what the center word of this passage is? K-N-O-W. You can know that you have eternal life. Do you have blessed assurance? Or do you doubt your salvation? If you knew today was your last day, would you be able to echo with Paul what he wrote at the very end of his life? I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, you hear that? In his righteousness, the judge has laid in store for me, Paul says, a crown. Even though all that stuff happened in the past, there is a crown awaiting me. And he says he'll give it to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing Paul wasn't a perfect man. He knew that. But he was also sure that he was saved. How could he be so sure? Earlier in this letter, he said, in chapter 1, verse 12, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him to this day, until this day. Paul didn't believe in himself. He believed on the Lord to finish the task. Is assurance of salvation, something that you have. Or maybe you pray something like this. Well, Lord, I know I believe you. God, maybe you could find it in your heart, perhaps, if you happen to be feeling really good on the judgment day, to maybe not throw me into hell. Humility doesn't pray that way. A broken faith does. Repent and trust in Jesus. Now, at the same time, as much as it was my duty tonight to try to show you the Christian's assurance in the Scripture. Not once, though, have the Scriptures given us any kind of indication that salvation is unconditional. We've already seen the conditions be in Christ and walk in the light. And of course, if you lack any of that stuff, you know that right now you are surrounded by people who love you. And I know that bell is going to ring, so I'll say a little bit more about that in just a few minutes. But don't forget that he invites you to be in him and to walk in the light. Let's pray. God, we're so very grateful for your love, which has been poured out, and that is manifested through the death of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that every time we think of the cross, we think of thankfulness, we think of assurance, because he was willing to do the unthinkable to save people like us. And yet, uh, we still fail you, so Lord, we pray that you'll bless us and give us the courage and the faith to continue walking in the light and confess that sin and never see it as a concession.
for sin. Thank you for this opportunity to be together tonight, and we pray that your word has strengthened us, and that as we've opened your word, that our hearts and our minds have been opened too. Lord, we love you, we thank you, in the name of Christ, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.